Madison, thank you again. It's a great way to be able to come up and get into the pulpit after listening to music and praise like that, isn't it? It comes from the heart. You know, I'm reminded also as I come up here this morning that uh, as believers, we're supposed to be praying. And I know we've got a lot to pray about. Uh, I want us to be reminded this week of the Noble family as they're uh, grieving the loss of a husband and father. For uh, Nan, as she continues to recover at home. Also, though, there were some ugly fires here in our own state and elsewhere. I believe last weekend it was like in Santa Barbara. Uh, this weekend it's Kern County. Um, the fires have been incredible, I guess, in New Mexico. And in the opposite of fire are the floods. And they have stricken Texas and West Virginia. And whenever those things affect people, we know they're affecting other believers. So let's just remember this week to be in prayer for the believers that are suffering as a result of these uh, natural disasters, if you want to call them that, but also for those who may be being pushed to look heavenward, that they might find Christ, they might find the God of salvation during a difficult time for them. And we're going to be talking, we're continuing in our study of Acts And uh, today's subject is, again, not one of those real pleasant ones. It's persecution. That's that's where we're going right now in this particular section of Acts. And I want to read something to you about an individual. In fact, it's a quote from this individual. He says, Christians in America will face great persecution soon, and they must be aggressors in the midst of it. This is the new phenomenon that has arrived, and it is going to increase. But we are the aggressors. God, faced by evil, sending his son as the answer to it. Jesus came with three things, truth, love, and self-sacrifice. And when you are slaughtered, you win the battle. This quote comes from a man named Joseph Tsan who was the president of the Romanian Missionary Society. He continued on. He said, Persecution actually begins in the early 1960s when all vestiges of Christianity were jettisoned from the public schools in the United States. At the same time, the media grew hostile to the Christian faith, which spurred the rise of postmodernism in both the country's culture and in her universities. As a result... America has lost any notion of absolute truth and has substituted sentimentality and political correctness as yardsticks for morality. Now, you may want to ask who is Joseph Son and who made him expert in persecution. Now, let me tell you a little bit about him. Son was pastored the largest church in Romania and had become an incredible nuisance and a threat to the communist regime of the Soviet Union. In 1973, he published a document that point by point uh, uh, told how, according to the Romanian constitution, that the communist authorities were illegally obstructing religious freedom in his country. And as you might guess, this did not make the authorities very happy. They retaliated with a prolonged attempt to break him through persecution and harassment starting in October of 1974 when he was first indicted for 
Propaganda that endangers the security of the state. It took only a short time to see that San would not recant his writings. And he recalled, They immediately consigned me to six months of interrogation, five days a week, sometimes up to ten hours a day. The interrogator had his special tools, arrogance, mockery, threats, guile, lies, and force, which also translates violence, by the way. I went into my questioning believing that those were Satan's tools and I should not use the tools of my adversary. So instead, I used my master's tools, which are trust in God, love, joy, truth, and self-sacrifice. Ultimately, Tsan made it clear that the only way they were going to silence him was to kill him. But if they killed him, he said this, My sermons will be sprinkled with my blood, and everyone will know that I died for my preaching. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in the supreme victory if you kill me. So Tsan was exiled from Romania in 1981. Rather than killed, he came to America, and he continued to serve his Romanian church through the Romanian Missionary Society. Then after communism's fall, he was able to return to his home country before going home to be with his Lord just last year. And while Tsan became somewhat controversial in his later years, his experiences and his warnings about persecution of the church are no less important And should not be ignored. We were also warned in scripture. About persecution. And the fact that it is the lot. Of the believer if you will. In 2 Timothy. Chapter 3 verse 12. Paul said this. Indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Might be persecuted. No. It says will be persecuted. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So if we want to live godly lives in Christ, the Bible says we should not be surprised when persecution comes. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us that it, as it didn't come to the early church when a number of believers exploded from just a few over 15,000 in a very brief period of time. Satan's attack was internal, as we discovered last week through the deceitful behavior of Ananias and Sapphira. But he also, uh, Satan also attacks us from the outside through religious authorities in Jerusalem as they experienced then, which is where we're going to pick up today. First, we find jealous religious leaders, imprisoned apostles, and the intervention of the Lord. And we start with the assault on the church. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. The religious leaders found themselves and, and demonstrated themselves to be indignant toward the new believers. Verse 17 says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. It seems the high priests here and the, and the Sadducees were jealous 
and the New King James calls it indignant, of what the apostles were getting accomplished, what they were getting done. And they were jealous of their miracles and their healing and power. And they were afraid of losing control of the people. Now, everyone's attention was on the apostles, just like it had been on Jesus. So these religious leaders plotted to do the same thing to the apostles that they had done to Jesus. They wanted to silence them. Now, you might remember that one of the key doctrines of the Sadducees was a denial of the reality of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And yet the apostles were out there proclaiming the resurrection all over Jerusalem. You remember, as I've said before, just about any time they opened their mouth, they were speaking of the resurrection. Now, it was bad enough that the apostles were teaching doctrine that was contrary to the religious leaders, but the people were embracing this belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. So not surprisingly, in verse 18, it tells us that those religious leaders arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So the apostles are now in prison in an attempt to immediately put an end to these teachings and the apostles' preachings. The high priest ordered that their arrest and had these guys uh, placed who were just religious prisoners now, but they were placed in the general population of uh, murderers and thieves and that ilk. This gave the Sadducees then time to prepare their next move. But look what happens. In verse 19, the Lord intervened. It says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple and at daybreak began to teach. Now, I find it interesting here, maybe even it's funny, that so far, everything that's happened has served to make the Sadducees look bad. Uh, not only were the people embracing the teachings of the apostles about, uh, about the resurrection, but now the apostles are freed from prison by something else that the Sadducees don't believe in. Angels! <laughs> this was nothing short of divine intervention. And in the middle of the night, when things are both literally and spiritually at their darkest, God came to the apostles and rescued them. And so I don't want you to miss this. God is always there in the darkest hours of our trials, regardless of what the trial is. Whether he chooses to deliver us from the trial, miraculously or not, his presence with us should not, could not be doubted. Now, secondly, notice that the purpose for rescuing the apostles was not for their safety. They went right back to the temple and continued preaching. When the Jewish people arrived at temple the next morning, the apostles were right there as they had been before their arrest. And clearly, an answer to the prayers that they had lifted up to the Lord in chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is after the release to the prison last time. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. He answered that prayer, didn't he? Stone walls, iron bars will not impede the work of God for his servants. Even a man-made iron curtain was not able to do so in our time. 
as it was for Joseph's son. Those tools are ineffective. Just as here, the Sanhedrin, the council, was ineffective. The ruling council was completely befuddled by what was going on with the apostles. Look at verses 21 to 25. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. (laughs) Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. I love that word. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came to them and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They didn't know that the apostles had been freed overnight. So here they were meeting together as a council the next morning, plotting, planning to quickly have these guys arraigned for trial. And while they were working out their strategy, the apostles were busy preaching already in the temple. Now, you have to pardon me for this metaphor. I'm a child of the 60s, early 60s. But this is starting to look like a classic Three Stooges short. When the temple guard was sent to retrieve the prisoners from prison, the doors were locked, the guards were standing there, but nobody was there. (laughs) The guards were still there. Look again in verse 24. It says, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Eugene Peterson's message renders it this way. He says, The chief of the temple police and the high priest were puzzled. What's going on here anyway? They couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what was going to happen next. And they were likely weren't so even concerned about the apostles as they were about the impact it was going to have on the people. This miraculous jailbreak was only going to add fuel to the fire. The power of the risen Christ to intervene on behalf of his followers. How are they going to explain that to the people? Their big problem was thinking that they had ended the Jesus problem by having him put to death. His apostles now were causing no less trouble than he did. Claims of resurrection, healings, signs, wonders, now a miraculous prison escape, and a growing group of followers the Sanhedrin knew they had a major problem on their hands. Oh, and where, where were those rascally apostles? Verse 25, someone came and told him, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So what did the council do? Well, they went after the apostles again. Look at their arraignment. This, first of all, means that there's another arrest. It says that then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they be stoned. In other words, this time they were a lot more low-key about the arrest. In fact, I suspect it was something more along the lines of, um, excuse us, gentlemen, but would you mind coming and, and having a word with us with the council, please? 
The word violence is only used four times in the New Testament, and it means force. So they brought them without force. Force was carefully avoided here. And I'm assuming that the apostles must have been pretty happy to go along with them. They knew they hadn't broken any laws. And they were probably just a little pumped up about getting to testify before the Sanhedrin again. So they're arrested again, and now there are more accusations. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So here they are before the Sanhedrin, and the apostles faced basically three charges. Insubordination, indoctrination, and incrimination. Insubordination, because if you remember back in chapter 4, they had already been clearly commanded to stop preaching about Jesus and to stop teaching in his name. But they refused, even after they had been put in jail. Secondly, the indoctrination that they were charged with, not only did they disobey the council by teaching in Jesus' name, but they were filling Jerusalem with this doctrine of the resurrection, made even more dramatic and believable now by their miraculous release from prison. And then there's the incrimination, the last line of that verse. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They were making the religious leaders look guilty for the death of Jesus, which of course they were. And they weren't just implying it. They were flat out accusing them of it, twice publicly, once in Peter and John's first arrest. Verse, or chapter 2, verse 23, you remember that Peter said, identified as this Jesus, you crucified and killed. Then in Acts chapter 3, Peter spoke in Solomon's porch, said, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, And you killed the author of life. And then in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Peter and John stood before this same council, and Peter said, Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. So they weren't mixing words. They weren't hiding around anything. They flat out saying, You guys killed Jesus, the Messiah. Well, the religious leaders objected to this now. And they objected to the apostles' apparent intention to, quote, bring this man's blood upon us. But you look back in Matthew chapter 27, when they were urging the crowd to crucify him and release Barabbas, the response then was a call for his blood be upon us and our children. We'll we'll take responsibility for this. We'll ask that you release Barabbas and kill Jesus. And now, Jesus' blood is something they don't want to accept responsibility for. But the apostles here offered only consistent answers. They began to answer the charges against them, and they were not timid or shy in their answers. And they start with an important fundamental principle that we see in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. This answers the first two charges, insubordination, which refers to authority, by the way. And the apostles are saying, We have a higher authority than you. It's Jesus. 
a resurrected Jesus. And it also answers the charge of indoctrination, which refers to what that authority commanded them to do, which we see back in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what this higher authority told them to do. Back in in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had already stated this obeying God rather than man principle after healing the paralyzed beggar at the temple. An English Christian leader, an Anglican cleric named John Stott, was noted as a leader of the worldwide evangelical movement. And in 2005, Time magazine ranked Stott as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He retired from full-time ministry in 2007 at the age of 86. (laughs) Wow. But he continued to serve his Lord for another four years before he went home to be with him in 2011. But he once summarized the application of this obey God, not man principle this way. He said, if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what God forbids or to forbid what God commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. That's on that slide. I want to read it to you again. If the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what God forbids, or to forbid what God commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God. We need to remember something. First of all, all the leaders of the world, whether we like them or not, are allowed to be there or put there by God, right? And he puts people in authority to do his will, not to command us to work outside his will. Because outside his will is sin. And he will not make us sin. Unfortunately, in America, we haven't had to face this problem on a widespread scale yet. It's getting more and more possible, the way they're messing with our laws. But so far, there aren't a whole lot of laws that force us to disobey God. But let me ask you, what if the CCSD down here passed an ordinance that now made it illegal for believers to gather together on Sunday or any other day of the week for corporate worship? What would you do? What would you say? The Bible says we should obey God, not man. And Scripture tells us to what? Do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. Daniel 3 tells of three heroes of the Bible. We even mentioned them this morning in Sunday school hour. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who chose to obey God and not man. Over the 2,000 years of the church, thousands of Christians have been martyred for being faithful to Christ. So the apostles started their answer to the charges by citing this very important principle. We must obey God, not man. Secondly, in verse 30, they confronted a very important problem by reiterating a little bit of history. Reminding the religious leaders of the problems that they themselves had created they being the Sanhedrin. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. 
In other words, you murdered God's Messiah. Now the Jewish leaders are in the guilty seat, not the apostles. And thirdly, they took on an important doctrine in verses 31 and 32, and they make a profound theological statement here. They say, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, Jesus isn't dead anymore. And the apostles witnessed his exaltation, that is, his resurrection and ascension. And he's now prince and savior of Israel, in spite of what you Jewish leaders have done. And now from God's right hand, he offers repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. A pure form of the Christian gospel is what they've just given them to the, to the Jewish leaders here. But finally here, what the apostles have also done, they, they've now created a new hostility. Verse 33 says, when they, the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. What do you do? If you don't like the message, kill the messenger, right? If they couldn't shut them up, they'd shut them down. But fortunately, a cooler head prevailed. A man named Gamaliel. Unexpectedly, this this respected member of the Sanhedrin, who became a voice of reason here, had the apostles removed for a short time. And then he began to reason with the Sanhedrin. Why, why did he, ha- he have this deference? Why was he so respected? Well, there was respect for Gamaliel because it says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. You see, Gamaliel was the grandson of one of the most respected teachers in the history of Israel, named Hillel. In Acts 22, verse 3, we find that Saul of Tarsus, who later was known in the Christian world as the Apostle Paul, also was, quote, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Secondly was the power of Gamaliel's reasoning. Acts 5, 35 to 37 says, And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So here Gamaliel tells the story of of two radical zealots who each had gained a a large following, but soon they led to be nothing. And he reasoned that this same end would be realized by this Jesus movement if the council would just be patient and let it play out. So he made a recommendation. Let them go. Just be cool. Don't get yourself all worked up. It'll come to nothing if it's not of God. I want you to see the hand of God at work here. Here's what he told them. He said, keep away from these men 
and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So back off. And his reasoning cooled the members of the Sanhedrin down. Convinced them not to put the apostles to death. Which would have been a would have at least dealt a severe blow to the new church. So then finally we see the aftermath of this persecution. Gamaliel's reason had won the day, and he decided to let them go. But verse 40 tells us that it wasn't without a serious warning. And we see the punishment that was meted out to the apostles. And when they had called the apostles back in, they beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So essentially the only new thing that happened here was they got beat up badly. They'd already been told before not to teach in the name of Jesus. Back in Acts chapter 4 verses 18, they received the same warning and it did no good. And for some odd reason the Sanhedrin just repeated this same warning and it was just as ineffective. And the apostles went right back to preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. And they also were praising him. I want us to see the appraise of the apostles. You know, I can see in my mind now as the apostles are released from custody, probably bleeding, maybe limping or being helping one another along. And look at their response in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council... Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Remember the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we see that right here, the apostles did just that. They were prepared to suffer for the sake of the kingdom and to receive the blessings that came with it. So what? Expect persecution. Thank you, Pastor. Glad for the warning. What does that mean to us? I want you to look at what the preaching of the apostles from here forward what the end result of the persecution was at the hand of the Sanhedrin. Luke summarized it in verse 42. It said, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It was not possible to stop the apostles from fulfilling their call to evangelizing short of killing them. They had been commissioned by the Lord, by the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. That was their call. And they weren't going to be dissuaded from it. That's exactly what they intended to do. In the temple... 
and house to house. And each one of us believers have exactly the same call, the same commission, word for word. So I'm going to ask a couple questions this morning. Are you one of those believers? Have you been called to be his witness? Have you, have you prayed to him? You know, being a believer is not difficult. I can't say that, can I? It's easy to become a child of God, but it's, being one of us is not easy because we're human, we're weak. But have you repented? Have you done what it said in here and turned to the Lord and said, You know, Lord, I want to acknowledge to you, yes, I'm a sinner. But I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be known as your child. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to be given strength and power and, and all that to do your work. Have you done that? It, and if you have, that's terrific. And if you haven't, why not? And if you haven't, when? How about today? You can do it today. You can do it right where you are. Or later, in the, when, when I'm finished, when we're singing, you can come up here and, and I'll come out and pray with you or somebody will come and pray with you. And you can pray for that repentance and forgiveness right now and be a believer. But if you are a child of God, are you prepared for the persecution that's coming? Because we all kinds of warning right here in his word that it's coming. If you're listening to the news, you know it's coming. It's been happening around the world forever, but it's coming. Are you prepared for it? Are you strengthened for it? Are you putting on the full armor of God so you can withstand those attacks? I pray you are. Would you pray with me? Father, I know that your scripture tells us that it's your will that all men would be saved. I also know that your scripture tells us that some will refuse the gift. And I know that breaks your heart. And because it breaks yours, it breaks mine. Lord, I hope there is no one in this room who is willing to to go through the fires of hell out of stubbornness. I pray that they would seek your face right now in prayer. They would seek an opportunity to have a repentant heart, which just means just change their direction. Stop doing some of the things they're doing that, that we know are wrong. To do right, to do as you have called us to do. And to spend time with you in prayer, to learn how to witness for you. And Lord, I would pray that we'd all do that. Because if we're not doing that, we're not doing what you told us to do. And that's, that's outside your will. That's one of those things that, well, we call them sin. So I, I would pray, Lord, that each one of us, in whatever way you've called us, is witnessing, witnessing for you. Some of us are, are called to do what I do and, and speak to others about your word. Some of the other folks that are in this room are called to sing and to lead others in worship. Some of us are called simply to talk to the people that we hang out with and not to hide your name, 
to speak your name boldly, to be willing to give you the honor and the glory for the good things that happen and for the power that you have to withstand things that are difficult. So it's not hard to witness for you if we're just willing to do it. I pray that each one of us will. And we're going to have plenty of opportunities in the days, the weeks, and the years that that we have left before you come back and, and decide to start us all over again here. So, Lord, I would just pray that each one of us will become a little stronger, a little bolder in our witness. I don't expect us all to go out and preach on some corner here in Cambria. But I do expect us to speak your name to others, particularly those in our family. Those are the first ones you've given us to speak to. In our families, our friends, and sure, we can even speak to others that we run into in whatever environment it happens to be. But help us, Lord, to be good witnesses for you in Jesus' name. Amen.